From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. History has always been uncertain, and oftentimes the degree to which a person or community claims to be certain of their salvation, that's usually a direct relationship to the number of other communities and other people that aren't being allowed in. And so it's the nature of the case that assurance of God's salvation, assurance of our true Orthodox identity is always involved in strife and uncertainty and restlessness and instability. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Dr. Travis E. Abels. He's currently affiliate faculty at Regis University. He's taught at Vanderbilt University and Eden Theological Seminary and has served as managing editor of the Anglican Theological Review. He's the author of the book Incarnational Realism, Trinity and the Spirit in Augustine and Bart. Longtime listeners will also remember that Dr. Abels was a contributor to Things Not Seen in our first couple of seasons, talking about media and culture. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims and the Invention of the Atonement. Dr. Travis E. Abels, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks very much, David. It's great to be here. So as a way of getting into the conversation, I have asked if you would read a passage from the conclusion of your book, The Body of the Cross, to really help us to set the parameters of what we're going to be talking about. Absolutely. So this comes from the next to last page, and it was a bit of reflection on the starting points of this book. And I'll begin here. This book began, in conception at least, as a meditation on Anselm's prayers and meditations. It always seems appropriate to return to these troubling, ambiguous, tortured texts to conclude. Anselm would have us at the foot of the cross with Mary between hope and despair. To put ourselves there is to stand in vigil. When Anselm prays of Mary, he is joining a cloud of witnesses of holy victims, and the memory of their passion giving him voice to pray to a terrifying void opened up on the cross. In part, this is an affective exercise, imaginative re-inhabitation of the Gospels, the type of practice later perfected by Francis of Assisi and Mechtel of Magdeburg. But Anselm also develops a language of kinship with the saints and the Savior. For example, in his prayer to Paul, Anselm rips the apostle's self-image as a nursemaid in 1 Thessalonians to develop language of divine solidarity. Paul is a mother who is birthed Anselm in the faith, but Jesus is also a mother a hen who gathers sinners under her wings. And so it goes throughout the prayers. Anselm was a witness for the martyred Stephen. He leans in Jesus' chest with John the Evangelist. John the Baptist cleanses his soul with fire and spirit. And these saints are not simply biblical figures. Anselm is equally complex and daring prayers, Nicholas of Myra and Benedict. For the Anselm of the prayers, Christ is not unique. 
is part of a constellation of figures by which Anselm constructs a community of memory and solidarity. The church for Anselm, as the communion of saints, is not simply a dispenser of merit. It is instead a community animated by the memory of the sainted dead. It is not difficult to imagine him writing new prayers to Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King Jr., or Oscar Romero. This doesn't simply amount to a series of moral exemplars. No, to Anselm, it is not just the faith of Jesus Christ one pleads as one's righteousness. It is the faith of Mary, Paul, and Stephen. The memory of the righteous saints stirs up the lassitude of the theologian. And that's our guest, Travis Abels, reading from his recent book, The Body of the Cross. There's a lot there that I want to dig into, and I appreciate you reading that extended passage. I think the first thing for us to get on the table here for listeners is we've just used in both the subtitle of your book and also in that passage the idea of atonement. And so when we use this word, that's kind of a fancy technological, theological word. What do we mean when we're talking about atonement here? Yeah, that's a great question. There are a couple levels uh, at which you can answer that question. Uh, the first, most commonly, when Christians particularly talk about the word atonement, they mean the way the death of Jesus Christ reconciles humanity to God. It is a mainstay of the Christian faith, something Christians have been saying since day one, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That turns out to be a very ambiguous statement. And Christians have been working for 2,000 years to figure out what exactly that meant. And so the doctrine of the atonement, the teaching of the atonement, is uh, the way Christians have answered that question. It's been answered in many complicated ways throughout Christian history. At a more general level, the, act, the word atonement actually emerged in the English Reformation. It simply means at one mix. It was a new term invented, I believe, by... It was, a, it, was, it was invented in the big English Reformation. So at, the, at that point, it works just as a general way of talking about reconciliation with the divine and overcoming the problem of sin in uh, the human experience. And so if I've heard you correctly, in dying on the cross, Christ does something. And when we talk about the atonement as a kind of theological concept, that is the church and the communities that have retold this story trying to fill in the blank of what that something is. Now, when I say it that way, have I heard it correctly, or would you say it in a different way? That's exactly right. And it turns out in Christian theology, there are a lot, there's a lot of discussion. There's a whole field devoted to this stuff. And one of the surprises of this book project is that what exactly that's the way we answer that question, how Jesus reconciles humanity to God, turned out to have very different roots in history than I imagined. That was really the impetus for this book. But yes, that's exactly how I described it. And we'll get into those different roots in just a moment, but let me take a, a, just a second to reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Travis E. Abels. He is currently affiliate faculty at Regis University, and he's taught at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Eden Theological Seminary. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims and the Invention of the Atonement. So as we're talking about these different ways that the church and the communities that gather around these stories have thought about what it means to say that Christ died for us, as we try and fill that in that big blank that we call the atonement, you mentioned just a moment ago that as you began to dig into the history of this, you had some surprises. And I wonder, as we're setting the table here, if you might give us one or two of the surprising things that you found in the process of researching this book, The Body of the Cross. Yeah, there are a 
the book is full of surprises for me, which hopefully will also be uh, surprising and, and compelling for the readers. And, you know, one of the really interesting things that happens as I kind of work through the history uh, of the Western Christian tradition, I'm talking about what we now call the Catholic Protestant traditions, uh, primarily in Europe and the Americas, was I took a long time to read the accounts of the ancient martyrs. Uh, so these are the Christians who were executed during the Roman Empire uh, for their faith. And this is a very, for historians and theologians, this is a really complicated matter. There are a lot of historians saying, you know, the Christians made it out. It wasn't as bad as it looked like. A lot of this is propaganda and that kind of thing. And that's a whole complicated thing that we don't necessarily need to jump into right away. But one of the things I found was that there's this common way of reading these ancient texts. And and these were passed Christian to Christian. They were read in the churches. These are big rally cries for early Christians. This bold, brave martyr who died for her faith by the brutal Roman Empire. And these martyrs would be characterized as participating in the death of Christ. They have channeled Jesus by their noble sacrifice. And they have so emulated or so replicated the passion and death of Christ that they actually have earned merit for the community. They have become a holy figure who passes on holiness to the church. Well, what I found out is that it actually works the other way around. The martyrs kind of were banking merit, were kind of building up extra holiness they're conveying to the church. And it took a couple centuries before Christians started to apply that concept to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The idea of, oh, well, in the cross, something happens that gains holiness, gains power, gains uh, sanctification, to use a technical term, for the church, really came from the idea that martyrs were dying uh, on behalf of the community. That's the opposite of the way that relationship is often seen. And that was a really fascinating, eye-opening moment to realize these ancient accounts don't read the, thing, the way we think they do. And that was a continual surprise throughout the process of writing this book. Let me see if I've heard you correctly. So what I'm hearing you saying is that in the early centuries, there were these attestations that Christ died for us, but they didn't start to fill in the technicalities, the mechanics of what that meant. But parallel to that, you began to have people who were living in this story and were being persecuted in this story, dying in this story in various ways. The, the people that we now refer to as the martyrs, or if you will, the, the holy victims, to use the subtitle of your book. And people began to look at the holy victims and say, these are the people who are, I'm, I'm remembering that old phrase, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church, that sort of idea. And so people were looking and saying, these people are dying for this great story, for this great cause, and that is inspiring others to come and become part of these communities. Now, what I'm hearing you saying is that we look back now and say they did that because they believe that Christ did that for them. And what I'm hearing you saying is that it was actually the reverse, that over the centuries they began to say, aha, maybe Christ was a martyr too, and and that that developed over time. Now, as I say that back to you, have I got the chronology correct, or did I miss something there? No, I think that's that's generally right. And there are a lot of factors happening. There is a truism among historians and theologians that for the first couple centuries of the Christian tradition, the cross, the symbol of the cross, did not primarily convey the idea that Jesus died. 
What the cross conveyed to early Christians was the, the resurrection. That cross is empty. Jesus has conquered death by his resurrection from the dead, which is the story of the Gospels in the New Testament. And so it conveys victory. It conveys power over death. It conveys release from bondage. So when these martyrs are, you know, and if you read these stories, and I, for the sake of our listeners, I won't get too graphic, they are tortured and murdered in spectacular ways, like the torture porn and the horror movies of the 21st century have nothing on these early martyr accounts. It's quite macabre and quite grisly. But they're going through these ordeals because they are empowered by this sense of resurrection victory over death and the powers of evil. And so because this symbol of resurrection is so empowering them, they are undergoing all kinds of spectacular deaths. And from that emerged the idea that death in itself has a kind of power because it was undergone so courageously, so nobly, so faithfully. And that was then applied uh, to the death of Jesus himself. And so as we're moving towards our first break, what I'm hearing you saying is that the earliest story of the cross was the empty cross. It was the victory of the resurrection. And only later did we begin as a set of communities gathered around these Christian stories to begin to say, and something else was happening with that body that did something for us. But we have to get through several centuries before we arrive at that interpretation. Have I heard that correctly? Yes, that's exactly right. And I should say that that particular part, the the cross meaning resurrection and victory, wasn't a unique finding in my part. That's pretty well believed by most uh, scholars of early Christianity. The big surprise was how things began to change as, as a result of the way these martyr steps were seen. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Travis E. Abels. He's currently affiliate faculty at Regis University. He's taught at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Eden Theological Seminary and has served as the managing editor of the Anglican Theological Review. He's the author of the book Incarnational Realism, Trinity and the Spirit in Augustine and Bart. And today we're talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims and the Invention of the Atonement. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Travis E. Abels. He's currently affiliate faculty at Regis University. He's taught at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Eden Theological Seminary, and he served as managing editor of the Anglican Theological Review. He's the author of the book Incarnational Realism, Trinity and the Spirit in Augustine and Bart, and today we're talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims and the Invention of the Atonement. 
In the first part of our conversation, we began to set the stage. And one of the things that came up is that as you dug back into the history of what Jesus is doing on the cross, one of the things that you discovered about the early church, and I'm going to say this phrase back to you, is that those early martyrs and others were somehow channeling Jesus and banking up merits for the whole church because of their righteous actions by being holy victims. Now, my understanding from reading your book is that when we get into the Middle Ages and into what we call the Protestant Reformation, there begins to be a pushback against that notion of really participating in channeling Christ and banking up merits. But I wonder if you can maybe briefly unpack for us what the problem was with the Protestant Reformers with this idea that somehow someone else's holy victimhood is getting merits for me. Yeah. So, of course, when we're talking about the Protestant reformers, we're talking about the early 16th century, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, who initiated what we now call the Lutheran, Presbyterian, and other Protestant churches, the modern evangelical Christianity in America being a further offshoot of that tradition. So this got really complicated. So what is happening in the Middle Ages is that you have these kind of two streams for purposes of the book. On the one hand, you have this, what they call the sacerdotal tradition. So this is the idea that the church is literally a treasury of merit. In other words, the church is this gigantic storehouse, or to use an economic metaphor, the church is a bank and it has gigantic holdings. And if you make an appropriate withdrawal, then you can get some of that accrued merit, some of that capital to fund your spiritual life. And the way you did that was to the sacramental system as administered by a priest. You go to confession, you take the Eucharist, and you get that marriage, that funding through appropriate channels. The church has a monopoly on these funds. Alongside that in the Middle Ages, and it, it amps up as the centuries go by, is you have a series of what I call popular reformers. And these are people who opt out. They believe that... I could preach the Bible on my own merits about ordination, about authorization by the church. You don't need a duly ordained priest to minister the sacraments. And believers can teach one another, minister to one another. You can have voluntary communities of believing folk. Most of those folks got branded as heretics, partly because of simple power play and on behalf of the church, and partly simply because the church believed that, you know, there needed to be appropriate channels as ordained by God. And from one perspective, what happens with somebody like Martin Luther is he's just the latest in a long lines of reformers who are making this protest against the monopoly of the church, and he succeeds. He has the right political backing, he has the right connections, he has the right message, he has the right personality, and man, did that guy have blows personality to actually make this movement succeed. There are other things going on there, but at one level, that was what was happening. And one of the things that dominated Luther's message in particular is stripping away that entire apparatus of institutional mediation, of institutional channeling of these spiritual resources and saying, you can access God in your own. Faith alone will save you. Faith alone will convey the power and grace and forgiveness of God to you. It's an incredibly powerful message. In the right political circumstances, you know, it catches like wildfire. And so that's all great. And that's all kind of classic textbook account of what happens to the Reformation. One of the 
implications of that, though, is that it narrows down the relationship between God and the believers, what I call the fragility of faith. The institutional apparatus is gone. Now it's dependent on you and your faith. There's somebody preaching the gospel to you. There's still a sacramental system, but it doesn't have the same kind of structural power that it used to. And that narrow little vessel, which is emotional, it's an exercise of your will, it's something that is interior, that now has to carry the entire weight of what for centuries has had this enormous institutional system to mediate the forgiveness of God. And from that narrowing down, that bottlenecking of the spiritual experience, all kinds of unforeseen implications took place. Let me see if I've heard you correctly. So in the early centuries of the church, we had communities that were in relationship to these holy victims. The The martyr stories became an important part of the way that the good news was promulgated. And these were people to, in some ways, emulate and that also they could, in some ways, intercede. And so we still see this in the Episcopalian Anglican tradition and the Catholic tradition and the Orthodox tradition. These are the saints that we sometimes pray with to, to get us closer to the things that we're asking for, the petitions that we have. Have. And what I'm hearing you saying is that in the process of pushing back against that relational system where we're in relationship to the martyrs and the stories of the martyrs, instead it moved from this relationship with others who are suffering into a kind of emotional state. How do I feel? What is my belief system towards this particular set of propositions about Christ, and that that became the important thing for Luther. Now, I realize we're moving in broad strokes and that there's a lot that's being left out here, but when I say it that way, am I venturing too far into caricature, or am I actually accurately depicting the movement that you saw between relationship to, for want of a better word, kind of pietistic emotion? Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, uh, yeah, as you've already said we're speaking in very broad terms here, and I hear a thousand historians screaming uh, right now at the broad implications. But that's the nature of the beast when you're telling a story this big. But no, that's generally right. And I, if I can, I want to back up for a second and illustrate this a little bit more clearly with a story. So a few centuries after Christ, there is this controversy in North Africa colonized by Rome. This is a Christian era. This is a part of the official Roman Empire. And what happens is that there's a persecution. And the bishop, who is a guy by the name of Cyprian of Bales, when he realizes his life is in danger, and somebody else takes up his role in the city. As the Romans are going to the city, and they're rounding up notable Christians, sometimes they're, they're the wealthy, sometimes the powerful, sometimes just somebody they're going to make an example of. And these folks would, would be brought into the prisons, would, they would undergo torture, interrogation, or whatever, would not yet be executed. These guys were known as the confessors. They confessed the faith, and their death was imminent. It hadn't yet happened yet. They're martyrs in the making. Somebody had a bright idea. Hey, see if they're basically dead. I mean, they're almost dead. They've undergone the torments, they've endured for the faith, they've pretty much got all of the spiritual power that a martyr does. Why don't I go ask them before they die if they'll pray on my behalf once they die? Like, once you get to God, hey, would you say a good word for me? And some of the confessors said, yeah, I got you. And 
from this develops this premise. The confessor has an actually issued letter saying, I testify that when I die, go to heaven of God, I'm going to intercede on behalf of John Smith and ask God to take care of John and his family. A black market starts trading these letters, and the confessors start to, so a few of the confessors, not a lot, start to make a bit of money. <laughs> and, you know, they have people bringing them food or whatever. And so there's just this trade that develops with these confessors' letters. Cyprian comes back, says, hold on, this is not the way this is supposed to be working. Anyways, the, the bishop needs to be authorizing this. The, the bishop is one that dispenses this kind of forgiveness, not these confessors, whether they're going to die or not. <laughs> anyway, long story short, out of this controversy arose the idea that it was possible to bankroll the good deeds, the merits of these holy figures and save them on your own behalf. Through over the course of many centuries, this develops in what you were just describing, what we now call the cult of the saints, which is very much part of the Catholic tradition and uh, the Anglican tradition. That there's, you know, St. Stephen, pray for me, or Hail Marys, or the little medal that might be in the dashboard of your Uber driver or whatever. That is really what we're talking about. We're talking about the church as a treasury of merits. To use crass economic terms, some people earn more than they need. They invest it. The church has those holdings and it dispenses it as it sees fit. And these saints are building this up over the centuries. Reformation strips all that away. Because Luther's concern, Calvin's concern is, no, that is idolatrous. That is giving glory to somebody other than God alone. If God alone is not acting in your behalf, that it's not certain, it's not sure, it's not the full power of God. You can't have certainty of salvation from some saints, no matter how holy that person was, praying on your behalf in heaven. You need to have the simple relationship between Christ and the believer and none of this other stuff. They might be like great moral stories to tell your children and guide them the ways of becoming a good Christian, but they cannot grant you salvation or forgiveness of sin. Only God can do that. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Travis Abels. He's the author of the book Incarnational Realism, Trinity and the Spirit in Augustine and Bart. And today we're talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims and the Invention of the Atonement. So I just heard in what you were saying two terms that really rang out for me, idolatry and certainty. And the Reformation in many ways was an attempt to put a bulwark against idolatry, and reach a kind of divine certainty. We can trust in God's atoning work, not in the atoning work of the martyrs or anybody else. We need to put our trust solely in God. And so those two things kind of work together. But there's an entire kind of edifice of knowledge that grows up around that. We want the real genuine thing. And so we develop trademarks and we develop uh, structures of authenticity that we've referenced at at various points in this conversation. And we do that because we want a very particular type of certainty. This is real. Now, you and I are speaking in 2022. We've had the whole postmodern thing where we've begun to question all of those ideas of certainty, those ideas that we can ever have a presence that is fully, you know, present enough to know that we've got the real thing. And so let me put it to you. Are you just doing some kind of postmodern mumbo jumbo on what is real, settled, kind of good, solid Christian teaching? Is this just some kind of flim flam to make us doubt real, certain truth? How would you respond? 
respond to that, Dr. Abels? <laughs> yes, I'm a postmodern heretic. <laughs> uh, guilty as charged. So here's the funny thing. Uh, no, that's a great question. Here's a really interesting thing. So a lot of, a big theme of this book is about what Christians call election. Election is the idea that God has chosen me or my community. And that is certain. It's an enormously powerful idea because it gives me assurance. If God has preordained me to salvation, you know, good. You can't abuse that and just go and live however you want, whatever. There, there follows the idea that I have to have evidence. I have to prove that before the world. That means, you know, typical Christian stuff, go to church, do good deeds, et cetera. But election is a powerful idea because it gives a community, it gives a tradition certainty of who they are. It gives them an identity. The funny thing about that, though, is that when you focus on the idea of election, it always inscribes a dividing line. It always erects a wall against the world. We are the chosen people. We are God's chosen ones, and nobody else is. And so the claim to having certainty of assurance of being God's people always means the division between us and them. And especially fraught times in history, and the Reformation was incredibly fraught. You had lots of communities saying, we're God's chosen ones. No, actually, we're God's chosen ones. And so you have enormous uncertainty. You have enormous strife, and you have literal people dying and being persecuted for taking the wrong position. And so one of the themes I was really looking at was how the quest for assurance, the quest for a solid identity leads to religious strife. And I would hope that the implications of that would be pretty clear for present day. We are living in an era in which the idea of the traditional Christian America is very much in question. And we have emerging what is often called Christian nationalism. And this is this kind of nostalgic idea of being, we're the ones in power, we're the ones who are God's chosen people, and we're surrounded by all these other communities that are not. So I say all that to say that history has always been uncertain. And oftentimes the degree to which a person or community claims to be certain of their salvation, that's usually a direct relationship to the number of other communities and other people that aren't being allowed in. And so it's the nature of the case that assurance of God's salvation, assurance of our true Orthodox identity is always involved in strife and uncertainty and restlessness and instability. What I really like about that move, and you begin to do this towards the end of your book, and it really slams home in your conclusion. So when we have this idea of election, as you said, it always creates a dividing line. And you bring this up at various points in your book, The Body of the Cross. That's how we create scapegoats, that, th that these sort of become the things upon which we place our fears and our sense of lesser than, and then we send the scapegoat out into the wilderness to die. And what's really interesting is the holy victims of the Roman Empire become the martyrs of the church. 
And the people that are power structures now don't want, want to make invisible, want to exclude, you begin to read that into our own 20th and 21st century sort of situations here in North America. And you say, yeah, and we've got holy victims now. They were the people who were lynched in the South. They were the people who were the victims of racial violence and other types of powered othering. And maybe these become for us in some ways connected to that same martyrdom tradition. It's a move that I think is really powerful, but I think it's a move that's going to make some people uncomfortable. So I'd like for you to maybe address why is it that you're looking at someone like George Floyd and saying, yes, George Floyd is a martyr, because some people are going to push back against that hard. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So two things I want to say there. First is to back up and and to reaffirm what you just said. Uh, when we're talking about holy victims, we've been talking about saints and martyrs and that kind of figure a lot. Holy victims are also the rejected in this book. And from the beginning, I trace this through line of various communities that are excluded from Orthodox or true Christianity. It starts with uh, what we now call Judaism, heretics known as the Gnostics, the popular reformers who are turned called heretics in the Middle Ages, uh, the Anabaptists or radical reformers. These are the progenitors of what we now call the peace churches like Mennonites and the Amish. In the Reformation, there's always somebody who is assigned the scapegoat status. These are gods rejected. And as they take the punishments of God, they take it off the church, and therefore the church has that threat of divine punishment removed because it's put on this other guy, this scapegoat. And these are just as essential to the idea of the holy victim as the saints, the martyrs are. So that's at a thematic kind of a level of the historical narrative. To speak from a personal perspective for a moment, when I was writing this book, and with one hand, I was trying to answer a question, you know, what we've been discussing, this historical question that came out of a classroom discussion. But I was also watching the news a lot, and I began the book in 2013. And in the immediate, immediately following years, we had Trayvon Martin, we had Ferguson, we had uh, a series of highly publicized deaths of generally Black youth, Black men at the hands of either vigilantism or the hands of police brutality. And we had a series of school shootings, several of which were close at home to me here in Denver, Colorado. And the prominence of violence on the national scale was impossible to ignore because it's so easy to forget that when we talk about the cross, we're talking about somebody who was viciously tortured and murdered by the state. Jesus was disappeared by the Roman power because he was an inconvenience uh, nuisance. And Rome was very good, as everybody said, uh, at making people pay for being political dissidents. So the cross is inherently violent. And one of my worries about atonement theology is that we tend to ignore that reality. The reason I felt like ending the book on racial violence was so important is because if we take the idea that Christians have often aligned themselves with state power and found their identity in being in power, and that power always comes at the cost of a scapegoated community. The question is really unavoidable. Who is the scapegoated community in 21st century America? And as I was watching the news, the answer to that question was unavoidable. Uh, racial violence is one of the primary characteristics of our time. And 
there's a logic there. There is a, there's a pattern there that became very clear uh, looking at the history that I was reading. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Travis E. Abels. He's currently affiliate faculty at Regis University, and he's taught at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Eden Theological Seminary. He served as managing editor of the Anglican Theological Review and is the author of Incarnational Realism, Trinity and the Spirit in Augustine and Bart. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims, and the Invention of the Atonement. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Travis E. Abels. He's currently affiliate faculty at Regis University. He's taught at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Eden Theological Seminary, and he served as the managing editor of the Anglican Theological Review. He's the author of Incarnational Realism, Trinity and the Spirit in Augustine and Bart, and today we're talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims and the Invention of the Atonement. Well, throughout your book, The Body of the Cross, there's one figure in particular that sort of keeps coming up as a kind of ghostly conversation partner, and that's the figure of Gustav Alain. And I wonder if listeners have not heard that name, maybe we could briefly say who Alain was and the role that he played in reconfiguring the main questions around these ideas of what we've been calling the atonement in this conversation. Yeah, that's a great question. And so this is one of those areas where uh, we have a series of scholars focus on a very kind of arcane, uh, esoteric question. And so I'll keep it pretty broad. The reason I'm interested in Eileen is I t- discussed earlier this field, this discipline of theology known as atonement theology. And one of the impetuses for this book was what I call an echo chamber. And you see these periodically in scholarly circles where maybe it's a kind of theoretical approach, maybe it's a uh, set of questions, it's the terms people use, whatever. But it keeps coming up, and it's just how we talk about this question. And that always prompts my curiosity, where did this come from? And in this case, it was... There are a set of categories or a set of theories by which people tend to talk about the effects of the across the atonement theology. There are these five theories throughout Christian theory, throughout Christian history, that this thinker is a satisfaction theorist. This is a more simpler theorist, and you know, whatever. The terms themselves aren't important. But I, I got really curious as to why everybody keeps repeating these five categories, because you don't see them until the 19th century. These are not Somebody from the 12th century wasn't using this concept. And a lot of it came from textbooks in the 19th century, but there's one figure in particular, and that was Gustav Alain, that used them. He wrote a, it's a very small book uh, called Christus Victor. It's a good book. It's well-argued, it's well-written, it's very accessible, and it's justifiably famous. But it's the benchmark that everybody who works in atonement mythology used. Everybody goes back to this one little book. Why is it so important? So that was a real impetus for taking on the investigation of this book. Elaine himself was an interesting figure. He was a Swedish Lutheran bishop 
in part of what's now called Londinsian theology. There are a few other figures who tend to get read these days that are from the same school of thought. It was responding, I won't, you know, get into the details of the situation, but responding to a particular situation as Swedish Lutheran politics in like the 1920s. This book comes out of that. Yeah, and for whatever reason, it just catches fire. It becomes like the defining textbook of this field of theology, and everybody uses the categories that Olaine invented to think about atonement theology. What I thought was really interesting, though, about this book is that it has what I call a nostalgic pattern of history telling. This is very common in Protestant theologians because Protestants, of course, they have the Reformation, and it's in the name itself. Reformation means reforming, recapturing the past. It's in, there are a lot of theologians invested in the idea that the Christian tradition, the Western Christian tradition, had this incredible moment of creativity and power for the first few centuries. It became what we now call Roman Catholic Church. We had to break away from that. And so we're recapturing where we were a thousand years ago. And so you have this moment of blooming and blossoming. You have this long decline. And then you have this recapturing of our former glories. He took that pattern and imposed an atonement theology. This guy named Irenaeus in the second century had it. And then you had these proto-Catholic theologians that brought in these, all this stuff about the saints, about penance, the sacramental system, all these accretions and corruptions that the reformers have to strip away. And it was just downhill for 1,200 years until Luther came along and set the ship back on course. That pattern of blossoming, decline, and restoration shows up again and again. And it is an incredibly powerful story. It's a great way to hook your audience, a great way to tell a really powerful story about history. But usually when we take a pattern and impose it on our history, we are cutting a lot out to make it fit that story. And that was one of the real concerns I had as I saw the dominance of this little book by Gustav Allen. What's really fascinating to me about that is that, just as you said, this kind of way of doing this nostalgic pattern of history telling, as you were describing Elaine, what kept coming into my head was Julius Wellhausen in the documentary Source Hypothesis. Like, there was this creative prophetic moment, and then the priests ruined it. And you can map that onto a kind of anti-Catholicism in the same way that you're mapping Elaine onto an anti-Catholicism. What's really interesting to me is that you are providing a kind of alternative narrative, and I'm going to use your own words to describe what I I mean. You say towards the end of the book that your view of atonement theology is that it is a machine for neutralizing suffering and rendering it transcendent, and the holy victims of the book are the ghosts in the machine, the dangerous memories whose deaths disturb complacent, tidy typologies. That is so different from the way that Elaine is thinking about this, sort of recapturing a noble, very creative past. You're saying, no, instead, what we're looking at is a kind of slaughterhouse, a kind of way of always creating, like, it's almost a machine for creating heretics and creating martyrs in this process of saying, we're elect and you're excluded. Now, I'm taking your quote, and I'm beginning to dress it up in various ways. As I'm taking your words and saying this back to you, am I overplaying my hand? Am I reading you too strongly? here, or would you feel like I've caught the spirit of how you're pushing back against this kind of nostalgic pattern of history telling that you find in the Christian tradition? Yeah, that that term slaughterhouse is pretty powerful, but I think it's important to, I, I think it's important to use language that shocks sometimes. And this is the great irony of talking about the cross, is that 
again, I said this earlier, but often in the classroom, uh, I teach undergraduates now, some of you have a cross necklace on or, you know, cross sticker on your laptop or whatever. It's this innocuous symbol that says Christianity. Think for a second about what it would mean if you had a noose around your neck or an electric chair on a chain around your neck. That's what that symbol would have meant in the first few centuries of Christianity. This was a symbol of state terror. And the death by the cross was an infamously agonizing, slow, brutal way to die. And it was not peaceful. There were no roses hunted. Uh, Jesus was not placid and looking blissfully up at heaven. He was dying in agony. And every time that we take the cross and fold it into a system to generate some transcendent meaning out of it, we lose that. It's not to say that we should dwell on the macabre details or teach and preach the grisly moments and moments, tortures that Jesus Christ has experienced on the cross, but we should never forget that it was a scandal. It was a slaughterhouse. It was something designed to terrify. And if all that we do when we talk about the cross is focused on what God was doing through it, how did we make the gesture to make it transcendent to make it part of God's plan. If we forget that suffering, then we are, we're betraying an essential aspect of the tragedy of the death of Jesus Christ. Let me take a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Travis E. Abels. He's the author of the book Incarnational Realism, Trinity and the Spirit in Augustine and Bart. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims and the Invention of the Atonement. Well, as we've been talking about all of this, and my suggestion just now that in some ways this atonement theology is a mechanics for creating martyrs and for creating heretics, I'm thinking now, and forgive me, of the social media Theo bros who love to come into conversations about anything and say, there are clear lines here and you're transgressing them, and heresy is still important. As I'm reading your book, The Body of the Cross, I think that you're wanting to trouble that assumption that we have a clear essence of what is the heretical. I think, if I'm recalling correctly, even at one point you say, when we look at heresy across time, there's not a kind of stable essence for it. It kind of changes to meet the needs of various communities. And so what is the role of this traditional category of what the Theobros and others, theologians all, would call heresy or error? Should we not care about error anymore? How do you deal with this idea that some things in Christianity might be wrong? That's a great question. It's actually what I wrestle with a lot, and I'm probably not going to have a very good answer. There's a story I like to tell, because I teach the Middle Ages a lot. It's really where I feel most at home. Uh, as a theologian. And let's talk about two figures for just one second. We have Francis of Assisi, one of the canonical, like top tier, top shelf saints of the Catholic tradition. You've got the Francis statue in your garden, and everybody loves Francis because he preaches to birds and says nice things uh, about nature and the sun, right? Everybody loves Francis of Assisi. And I, I also Blood Francis of Assisi. I think he's a great figure in Christian history. Then there's another guy by the name of Peter Baldus, or sometimes known as Peter Waldo. Roughly contemporaneous, first, the last bit of the 12th, early 13th century. Roughly the same time in the early Middle Ages they lived. I think Peter was a little bit older. 
One was a saint, the other was a heretic. What was the difference between them? Not much. Very little, actually. One, Francis of Assisi, was actually, for all of his reputation as an early flower child, uh, was actually pretty politically savvy. He knew to form a good working relationship with his local bishop. He had a meeting with the Pope in which he conveyed his message, asked permission for his non-ordained lay brothers to preach the gospel, to push. Pope says, this is a holy man, go for it. Peter was a bit of a bull in a china shop. He did not have a good relationship with his local bishop. Uh, he went ahead and started sending out his uh, fellow brothers to preach the gospel. Uh, and he was branded a heretic in the Waldensians, or one of those notorious heretical movements of the Middle Ages. The difference was power in relationship to power. Now, Peter did a few things that were absolutely verboten at the time. He ordained women, and he, God forbid, right? And he translated the Bible into his local vernacular language. Power and politics were behind most of the differences between these two figures from the great saints in the Middle Ages, one of the great heretics in the Middle Ages. Now, it's reductive. It's too much to say that the difference between orthodoxy and heresy always comes down to power. That's not true. It's, there are definitely times in which there are lines in the sand that need to be drawn. But a lot of times it does come down to power and to politics. And the choice here is not simply that orthodoxy is always about power. It's not. There are definitely times where what we now call the orthodox were the victims or the minorities or the persecuted group. There are plenty of examples of that. But the key point to take away is that what we think of as orthodoxy and what we think of as heresy is constantly changing, constantly shifting. These are moving targets throughout history. And oftentimes, the overlap is extremely close. If you ask one person, Francis is a heretic. If you ask another, he's a saint. And and many of the mystics and the most powerful spiritual figures in the Middle Ages, this is true. It depends on who you ask. It depends on what kind of relationship they have with their local bishop or their ecclesiastical overseer. And so I think if we take that idea seriously, that we have to ask the question, orthodoxy and heresy according to whom? And I know this might be a little bit postmodern woo-woo that you were talking about a little bit ago, but the reality is that history is really messy, and these positions change throughout history. And so if we just take that seriously, we have to be much more nuanced in the way we approach orthodoxy and heresy. One of the things that I really love about your book, The Body of the Cross, is that it makes the move that you just made. It's, it says we're not going to reduce all this to sort of Michel Foucault and power questions. There's more subtlety there to talk about. That, let's call that sort of move number one. Move number two is you say, okay, and we're just going to focus on this one question, this one aspect of doctrine called atonement. We're not going to try and deal with the entire systematic nature of theology. But what I really love about those two moves together is that when you make them, and you, you make them early in the book and you stay consistent with them throughout the book. You say, we're just going to be talking about the way that atonement plays out, and we're going to be doing it, not reducing it all to power relations, but taking account of power relations as part of our overall analysis. It allows you to come to this place where it's like, and by the way, we're really doing a horrible job of actually kind of implementing Matthew 25 and other sorts of things where we need to find Christ in the suffering. You come out at the other end of that with a really kind of way of of reimagining the whole process of being church. And so as we're coming to the close of our conversation, I want to invite you now to swing for the fences. Given that you narrowed the focus to atonement and you said, we're not just going to reduce this to power relations, but we're going to use a kind of analysis to get us 
us at what eventually will be the effects of power, but without just making that the sole focus, what can the church learn generally from the work that you've done here? What is your hope that will be taken up from your project into the wider conversations of the church? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's two things I want to say there. And one is to return to a point we were discussing a few minutes ago about the violence of the cross. There's at one point in the conclusion, I say that subject position matters. And that means who you are, what your situation is, matters when you're taking up this question of the violence of the cross. The last part of the book talks a lot about uh, lynchings in early 20th century America at the same time as this horrific thing was happening in the South and not just in the South. There was uh, a book series known as The Fundamentals, a 12-volume series of articles written by early, what we now call fundamentalist Christians, drawing the lines of anti-modernism in Christianity. And there's a whole host of things they're opposing and concerned about that I know is worried about. But it was striking to me. This was an early front of what we now call the culture war. And Christians were losing their place in the new modern America, and they were becoming reactive about it. They were reactionary about it. At the same time that people are dying at the hands of mob violence, that is a powerful juxtaposition. It's a powerful parable, I think, for how poorly American Christianity has taken responsibility for ending violence and oppression in our society. That at least the question of religious violence is unavoidable when it comes to the cross. And I want theologians to say, we cannot talk about this without asking who the victims are right now in our situation. I wish that were a figurative statement, but it is not. It's sometimes a literal statement. So it's a question we always need to ask. Who are, are we in a position? And I'll speak for myself. I am a white, cishet, middle-class Christian. And I live a privileged life, and I know that. I could talk glibly and with great ease about the violence of the cross all day, and I have. And if I'm not taking seriously what that means in our contemporary situation and asking where the violence is being visited upon people today, they'll fail to take the cross seriously. It is very different for a marginalized community to take up the question of the cross. And one of the big points in the last chapter is talking about early African-American spirituals, in stories using the cross for empowerment, for hope, in ways that unlocked meaning for that community that aren't accessible for someone who's not experiencing the suffering that they are. And so I think that's an essential dimension of how I approach the question of atonement. Who are we? What is our situation in history? Is the truth that we think we are saying empowering and liberating? If not, then we need to re-examine it. That's very idealistic, <laughs> and I recognize that. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was to speak from a personal perspective. This was written in the Trump years and watching the violence that was tearing our nation apart during the, those years. And I was writing the forward to the book just a few days before the January 6th insurrection. <laughs> of course, I couldn't see that happen. But I found it very difficult to identify as a Christian during the Trump years. And it's left an indelible stain upon my confession of faith because I am now associated potentially in the minds of my conversation partner with people who tried to overthrow the government. And that is the precise kind of violence that I want theologians to have in mind as they talk about the cross. Is it serving 
the interests of power or is it bringing meaning and hope to marginalized communities? That is the question we must ask when we talk about the cross. And if we aren't asking that question, then I don't know what the value of our discourse is. And I wish I had a better answer in terms of what this might look like for the church. I feel like for American Christianity, it's a time to reassess. It's time to self-examine. It's time to ask some really hard questions. And yeah, if this book can contribute to that, then I will feel very, very happy. Well, Travis Abels, I can only speak from my own experience of reading your book, but it really hit me where I needed to be hit. It really struck me in a place of my own need. I think that you have done what I think so many scholars aspire to. You have taken a complex set of ideas and you have rendered them in a way where even a reader that doesn't necessarily have all of the technical training that you and I have could come into this book and follow your reasoning and see how it is materially unfolding through the centuries as you walk us through it. And then to come to the end of the project and to really capture exactly the spirit of what you're just saying, that we need to be very cautious about the power that we're allying ourselves with, the ways in which Christianity is presenting itself with the world and who we're standing with when we do that. I'm incredibly grateful that you took the time to write this book. I'm especially grateful you took the time to talk with us about it today. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm so glad to hear that, David. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Dr. Travis E. Abels. He's currently affiliate faculty at Regis University, and he's taught at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Eden Theological Seminary. He served as managing editor of the Anglican Theological Review, and he's the author of the book Incarnational Realism, Trinity and the Spirit, and Augustine and Bart. Today we've been talking about his recent book, The Body of the Cross, Holy Victims and the Invention of the Atonement. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.